Well, welcome everybody. It's good to see you. And thanks for joining us this weekend at Grace. Thanks for everybody here who's here live in the room. And uh, also, of course, those of you joining us online. Uh, it's good to be back with you guys. Been out and about for the last uh, few weeks, uh, working a youth conference that uh, I helped to lead. We've been, uh, we probably had that youth conference for the last 25, 27 years. And uh, we interact with a couple thousand teenagers at that conference. Uh, but this year we took it on the road. Uh, we called it Momentum on the Road. And uh, we did that because of some of the leftover complications from COVID. So that's where we've been. Uh, myself and a bunch of our team have been out there. And uh, we've been uh, hanging out with teenagers and their youth workers and pastors and uh, having a great time. And that was a blast to encourage them to see God move in them and, uh, and to be connected in that way. So thanks for letting us do that. And uh, it's also really really, really too good to, to be home. Uh, I'm excited to uh, launch into uh, a new series this weekend that we're calling The Call. And uh, this series is kind of a little bit unique because it's actually the, the teachings that we were doing through our youth conference. And so we had a teaching team that was uh, taking kind of the different sessions and we put a really strong theme together. And uh, that team was made up of, of pastors who came in and we're speaking at our conference. So we all agreed with each other that we would kind of take each other's stuff and uh, take each other's insights and research and take it home to our home churches and kind of teach it to you guys as well. So some of what I'm going to share with you is uh, kind of directly from me and other parts of it are, uh, are some other guys' thoughts and research kind of blended together. But we wanted to share this because we think it's exciting. Uh, we think it's a powerful thing, an important thing, and it's unique that we've kind of already seen how these messages can impact people and change people, and so we want to do that for you. So uh, the series that we're going to set up the call is going to be really strongly anchored in Luke 15. So if you got your Bibles or your phones or you want to use the app, uh, go to Luke chapter 15. If you want to use the Bibles uh, here in the room in the chairs, it's page 848, and those Bibles. Bibles. And out of Luke 15, we'll, we'll spend a couple weeks there and, and all of our series kind of around uh, the parables of Luke 15. There's really, really powerful insights that Jesus wants us as his followers to get a hold of. So if you're a Christ follower, uh, these would be insights and, and teachings that Jesus would say, I want you to know this about my heart and I want you to know this about my mind and I want you to graph this into your heart and into your mind. If you're not a Christ follower yet, uh, what you'll see through this series is the heart and mind of Jesus, of course, just what, how he thinks and what drives him. And what you're really going to be able to get a hold of is his desire to know you and interact with you. And then you'll also get a hold of a little bit some of the dangers that God would look and say, these are the things that would compete for your heart and mind. And so I want you to know that, know how to respond to that, know kind of what the alternative is. And then at the end of the series, you'll get a hold of a little bit kind of why Christians act some of the way that they act, what would motivate us and drive us and move us forward as individual followers of Christ, as well as a, a church 
church, like a grace church, and why we would function those ways. So I think either side of that coin that you're on, uh, if you're a Christ follower or if you're not yet a Christ follower, I think this series is going to be really, really helpful and insightful for, for you. Okay, so Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to camp and kind of hang out, and you can take notes in your Bible or on the app there if you want to, and, uh, and let's dig into Jesus's heart and mind a little bit. So the setting of this is a curious one. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, uh, the Bible says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This is a very, very diverse crowd. So in biblical times, a tax collector, a sinner is somebody who is going to be pretty highly scorned by the culture. Uh, the people are going to kind of hate the tax collector's guts, right? Some things, I guess, never change, but they're going to kind of hate their guts. The sinners, these are everybody from people who have no knowledge of God, and then we know in the Bible, this is all the way to people who are liars and cheats and prostitutes, and this is collection of sinners. So they're there, and they're listening to the heart and the mind of God, people who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. And then there's also this other group in this crowd that uh, that would be documented by Luke, and that's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would be kind of the re- the religious elite, people who are like super duper church going people, uh, legalistic people, self righteous people, uh, incredibly high moral code people, and they would take a lot of pride in that. That's who these guys are. They're all mixed together, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are upset that Jesus was willing to interact with these sinners and even eat with them, break bread with them, have friendships with them, have connections to them. So that's kind of the gathering in the scene. Jesus hears the muttering of the self-righteous and he begins to respond to it. And he says, I'll tell you what, let me tell you a story. And so Jesus created what we call parables. So parables, were just stories that Jesus would make up to teach a truth about himself. And he would usually use kind of the cultural settings of the day. And so you can imagine uh, Jesus seeing something or being near something or having just experienced something. And he would use that cultural settings of the day to teach this principle about himself. And so he said, let me tell you a story. Here's a parable for you. And he says this in verse three. Three, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 and go to the open country and, and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So pretty simple scenario, right? You got a hundred sheep. One of those sheep wander off. The shepherd who loves and cares for and is responsible for all those sheep goes and looks for the one sheep and he leaves the 99 in what Jesus called open country, all right? So he leaves the 99, he goes and he looks for the one. Now on the surface, probably to our kind of Western ear today, uh, that would sound 
probably irresponsible, right? Are you gonna are you gonna sacrifice the many for the one? Don't the good of the many outweigh the good of the few? Isn't that what Spock said in Star Trek? Like, isn't the way that that works a little bit? So it sounds a little bit weird to us. And so what we have to do for a second is get into like what it means to be a shepherd and how an ancient person would have thought. So I don't know anything about shepherding. I've never done it. I interacted with sheep one time years ago. We had a live nativity that we used to do out in front of our Gent Road building and we had sheep and one of them got away. <laughs> and that, that was the extent of my interaction with sheep was chasing uh, a wild sheep around Bath, Ohio. So that was fantastic. But that, that was kind of the, the, the extent that I've interacted with them. But it's fascinating when, when you kind of research this a little bit, what Jesus was proposing or saying was not irresponsible or neglectful of the many for the sake of the one. It actually was the heart of a shepherd because of the nature of sheep. So as I research this a little bit and listen to other pastors and scholars talk about this, what what we found was this, that sheep are the most safe and secure and protected when they're together. And the way that they have their protection, they don't have a lot of natural defenses. You know, sheep don't really have claws. They don't have fangs. They're not particularly fast. And so where they find their protection is in the group. And when they group together, they're the safest from predators. So when the shepherd leaves those other 99 in the open country, he's actually leaving them in the safest place they could be because they could rely on and lean on each other for safety and protection. And the shepherd knew that they were the safest there and he knew that the one that was lost or wandered off was an extreme danger, right? Sheep are helpless and kind of hopeless when they're all by themselves, And so Jesus is using that as an illustration. The the ancient people would have automatically understood what he was saying. We're not shepherds, so we have to work at it a little bit. But he's saying, right, when you're off there, you're in danger. When you're together, you're safest. And the shepherd knew that. So the shepherd put himself in that danger, so to say. He went looking for the sheep. He was frantic for the sheep. He knew that the lost sheep needed to be reconnected to the flock of sheep in order to be at its safest and most helpful point. So he left the 99. He went to the one. He found the one in the parable. And this is what the Bible says the shepherd did. When he found it, he joyfully put it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Now, this gives us an insight into God's heart and God's mind. When the sheep wanders away, the shepherd now has to go look for this sheep, right? But when he finds the sheep, his response is not anger, it's not annoyance, it's not disgust, it's not scorn, it's not accusation. His response is joy. I found what was lost. 
and he takes the sheep and he puts it on his shoulders. He doesn't discipline the sheep. He doesn't, you know, turn the sheep into to mutton and eat it, lamb chops. He, he loves the sheep. He puts it on his shoulders. He's so happy about it that when he gets home, he calls his friends and neighbors and says, let's, let's have a, a party because I found my lost sheep. So Jesus is explaining his heart and his mind to tax collectors and sinners and self-righteous people. That's who's listening to him. And he's saying, I'm, I'm a father, I'm a shepherd that searches. If you're lost, if you're separated, I'm concerned about you, I love you, I'm not mad, not honked off, I'm not disgusted, I'm looking for you because I want to find you. And when I find you, my heart rejoices that I was able to find you and I was able to bring you back home to the flock where you belong, all right? So Jesus tells this parable, the first parable he does, it's the, it's the one in the 99. And I'm looking and I want to find you, I rejoice in it and I want to bring you home. Well, then he goes on and he says, okay, let, let me reinforce this idea a little bit. I'm going to tell you another parable. And so the next parable, the next story that he made up to teach us about his heart and his mind is what we call the parable of the lost coin. So the parable of the lost coin, he says this, or he's like, if the sheep thing didn't work for you, let's talk about a coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one right? What does she do? Let's stop here for a second. So 10 silver coins to us, uh, that silver coin probably wouldn't mean a lot to us because we'd probably think of a nickel or a dime or a quarter as a silver coin. But to a person in the ancient world, that silver coin would have had different value. So that silver coin would have represented uh, a minimum of a day's worth of wages to someone, right? So how much ever money you would make in a day, if you put in an eight or a 10 hour day, you got paid, that's how much money was missing. And so she lost one of those 10 silver coins. Uh, One scholar said that maybe what this was, there was a good chance of what it was, was a dowry necklace, right? So if you don't know what a dowry is, um, think about it this way. When, uh, when you want to ask, when a young man wants to ask a young woman for her hand in marriage, right? He goes and he earns a bunch of money. Then he goes to the jeweler and then he's shocked by the price of the jewelry, but he keeps saving up because he's madly in love with her. He buys her a diamond engagement ring, puts it in a box, goes to her, maybe talks to her dad, asks for permission, sets up some kind of a surprise party with lots of video cameras involved to capture it for prosperity and he gets on his knee and he asks her if she will marry him and he opens the box and in there is the diamond ring, the engagement ring, right? That's how we would do it today. In the ancient world, you would do it something a little bit different. You would pay a dowry to the father to marry 
the girl. So you would save up your money, you'd work hard, all those kind of things. You would go talk to the father. You may also be shocked at how much he wants, what the dowry is, but you would give that dowry and it was kind of like a down payment or a purchase price for a wife. It's not real romantic, but it's just the way that it worked back then, right? So you would, you would do that and you would give that dowry to the dad as a display of your affection or desire for his daughter. What many women would do then is this. In our culture, a lady would put on her engagement ring and that would let everybody know that she was betrothed or she was engaged so that other guys would know she's kind of not available. In the ancient world, during the engagement period, Oftentimes what women would do is they would take their dowry money and they would string it into a necklace and they would then wear that necklace and it was kind of like the engagement ring. It was the symbol that I, I'm betrothed or I'm, I'm committed to somebody else. So some scholars believe that Jesus has that in his mind and what he does is he, he uses this example and he says, suppose that one part of that engagement necklace is lost, right? If you've ever lost something valuable, if you've ever, some of you ladies, if you've ever misplaced your rings, right? You go right for them right away because that engagement ring, kind of regardless of its value, has tremendous value to you, right? And so maybe Jesus had that in mind. And he says, you want to know what God's like? He's like a shepherd looking for a sheep. You want to know what God's like? He's like a lady who lost her engagement ring. She is searching for it. And what does she do? She didn't lose a quarter. She didn't lose a check that she never cashed. It would have way, way more meaning to it than just the financial meaning. What does she do if she lost that? Well, he says this in verse eight. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found something that I have lost. You ever done that? Maybe you've misplaced your engagement ring. You find it, you're like, yes, I'm so relieved. I found it. You lost your phone. Maybe I found it. The car keys, I found it. You lose something that has maybe financial value, but more than financial value, it has emotional value or heart value. And you might find that thing. You might hold it up. You might even kiss it, right? Like, oh, I found it. Well, in his parable, Jesus is saying, that's what God's like. When somebody is lost, separated from the flock, he's like a shepherd. He, he's, so, he's relieved he found his sheep. When somebody is lost, he's like the lady looking for the coin. He's relieved. He's searching carefully until he finds it. And when he finds it, he rejoices. I found my coin. Let's have a, I found my coin party, right? He rejoices. He's not angry. He's not bitter. He's not accusatory. He's just thrilled, right? That he found what 
was lost, right? So the first two parables about the lost sheep, the second parable is about the lost coin, the third parable I'm going to get into in depth with you in a couple of weeks, but it's about two sons, and we often call it the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And there's two sons. And one of the sons was lost. And you see the heart of a father longing, hoping, desiring, waiting for his son to come home. And when he comes home, the father rejoices. See, he's thrilled and he can't wait until his son is back in his arms again, right? So Jesus is explaining his heart to sinners, tax collectors, and self-righteous people, Pharisees and teachers of the law. And he says, if you guys wanna know God's heart, the sinner and the tax collector probably felt like God's heart was angry and disgusted with them. Like, ugh, how could you do that to me? The Pharisees, the teacher of the law, they probably felt like God's heart, they, they reflected God's heart. God's heart wanted us to be pious and self-righteous and separate. And through all of this, Jesus is saying, no, God's heart is a heart that searches. God's heart is a heart that longs. God's heart is a heart that rejoices and welcomes, right? And when you tie those parables together, you, you see what Jesus is doing. He's not just repeating the same story again and again. He's emphasizing what his heart and his father's heart is like again and again. Notice that each story, each parable decreases in number, right? So there's 100 sheep, there's 10 coins, there's two sons. But notice that as it decreases in number, it increases in value. One lost sheep wasn't that big of a deal. That's just, that, that's just a farm animal to a shepherd, right? It's like, eh. One lost coin. I lost my engagement ring. That's a big deal. But one lost son. Oh, my. That's life-altering. That's tragic. That's beyond almost comprehension, right? And Jesus is pushing deeper and deeper into an explanation of his heart and his father's heart toward you and me, right? Now, if I was gonna draw kind of an umbrella principle out of this, this is what I would say. The thing to see in these three parables at this point in our dive into them would be this, that the value of what is lost determines the intensity of the search. The value of what is lost determines the intensity of the search. Lots of sheep, I'm gonna go find it. Lots of coin, I'm gonna light a lamp, I'm gonna scrub the house. If I lost a son, I would spend my life looking for my son or my daughter, right? The, the value of what is lost determines the intensity of the search, right? Now, when we think about God's heart, and we think about God's heart for you and I, there is nothing more valuable to God than, than a human being. And the value that God places on you is determined and defined by the giving of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. 
So what are you worth to God? You're worth the offering of a son. You're not some dumb sheep that he's, I got 99 more, or some coin, like, that's really sad, but I'll buy you a new ring, honey. You are irreplaceable to God. And this is what's fascinating in the scripture. The Bible would teach this, and I'm, I'll kind of paraphrase it all together here, but the Bible in essence would look and say, you as an individual are irreplaceable to God. And when you get your head around that and you understand God's love for you and that he's searching for you and he places an incredible value on your life, the value of his son is the value of you to him. When we understand that and we respond to God and we ask for the forgiveness of our sins so that the barrier between us and God is removed and we can interact with God as we were created to interact with God through his son, Jesus Christ. When we understand that our value to God is the value of his son and we accept our salvation and live in relationship with God, we are then reconciled to God. That's what the Bible would say. It's the Bible word. The word reconciled just means we were separated. When somebody is irreconciled, they're, they're split apart. If they have irreconcilable differences, it means they can't get back together. When they are reconciled then, it means that those differences have been healed, solved, replaced so that they can be in right relationship with God. So God through his son Jesus made a way for those of us who are broken in our relationship with God and from God to be reconciled back to him. When I get my head around that, that I am that irreplaceable and valuable to God. And I accept Jesus's work of reconciliation. I am reaching out and taking the hand of the shepherd, so to say. I'm the coin that has been found. I'm the son that will return home. When that happens in my life, something changes in my relationship with God. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, that connection needs to happen in your life. And what Jesus would want you to know as one of the tax collectors and sinners is that he is God and he is on a search mission for you and he loves you and he wants to find you and he wants you to find him. And if you will take his hand, he will rejoice that you did that. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ yet, that's exactly what God wants you to do. He wants you to turn away from your sin that separates you from God. He wants you to receive forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ alone so that you can be reconnected with your father or your shepherd or the coin to the lady who lost it, right? Because that's what you were created to be, right? Now, if you have already done that, the Bible says that your relationship with God shifts a little bit. So that not only are you the sheep and the coin and the son, because you've been reconciled to God, you become also the shepherd and the lady and the father. 
you shift where you search for those who are lost as you were searched for. You light the lamp and you look carefully for those who are lost as you have been looked for. You wait at the door eagerly waiting for your son to come home as the father was to the prodigal son. In fact, the apostle Paul goes this far with it and he says, this is 2 Corinthians chapter five. He says, all of this reconciliation stuff, all that's from God who reconciled us to his himself through Jesus Christ is what we just talked about and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I was the sheep. I was the coin. I was the son. Now that I've been restored to the relationship I was created to be in, I am like the shepherd, like the woman, like the father. And I do the same work. I have the same heart. I now am in a all-out search mission for the sheep that have been separated from the flock, for the coin that has broken from the necklace, from the set it was meant to be in and fallen into the floor somewhere. I now play that role, Paul goes on, he says, as if Christ himself were making that very appeal through you. This ministry of reconciliation is reflectant of the heart of our Savior Jesus and his Father God. And it's been birthed into his followers. We help reconcile humanity from their sin to God but the scripture would go on and it would say, you also help to restore relationship between brother and brother and sister and sister. That this lifestyle of helping people reconnect to God and reconnect to each other in a godly way is a ministry or a lifestyle of a follower of Jesus. This is why Jesus does things like Pray for the unity of his church. Forgive each other, love each other. Make sure you guys function in unity together because when you do that, you're a picture of unity between me and and you. It's the ministry of reconciliation. It's why he commands us to forgive one another. It's why he insists on that we, we love one another. It's why he would say those of you who are weak should always with gentleness and respect seek to restore someone who has fallen or distant. You don't get angry. You don't get annoyed. You don't get disgusted. You are motivated by love. And if you find a brother or sister that is away from the flock or a coin, a brother or sister, who has broken from the set. You search for them intensely. You find them, and when you find them, you love them, you forgive them, you process whatever broke that relationship with them, and you rejoice when they're connected to each other. Jesus himself said it this way. He says in Matthew chapter 18, he says, if another believer, right? This isn't just being reconciled to Christ, but if another believer, someone who has been, if one of them sins, if they're the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, if a relationship is broken between them and God, but also between you and them, You have this ministry of reconciliation. If that happens and they sit against you, 
you, you should go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person over. Jesus would say, that's how my people are to interact with each other. That's how I interact with you. When you sin, the the very first thing I'm going to do is convict you through the word of God by the Holy Spirit of that sin. I'm going to find you. You're lost. I'm a shepherd and I search. I'm a lady and I clean and I, I look for the coin. And he's saying to Christ followers, you just do that. Do that for lost people who are far off and then, and then do it for each other. If a believer sins or is separated from another believer, go and work that out. Paul says the same thing when he's getting the early church ready for communion. He's like, if you have sin or tension... Don't take communion before that is worked through. Look for your brother or sister. Process that through. Because if there's disunity within the body of Christ, we're not reflecting the body of Christ's unity with the Father. So you become the shepherd. You become the lady. You become the one who searches. Now, Why is this on my heart? This is on my heart because over these last 15 months, the era of COVID, many of us have been separated. We've been separated from the heart of God and the mind of God. And we've been separated from the heart and the mind of our fellow believers. Many of us have been overwhelmed by the culture shock that has happened where 10 years of change have happened in 12 months. And our minds and our hearts and our passions and our anxiety is so tied to those cultural things that it has pulled us from the shepherd himself where I spend all of my time and energy processing the culture and, and processing what I think and what my opinion is and not nearly enough downloading the heart and the mind of God. I'm consumed with the culture and it's filling my ears and my mind, so to say, that I don't hear the shepherd searching for me or I don't trust that the lady is looking carefully for me, Right? As I was out working with these high school students and their youth workers and and, uh, volunteers, the stats are staggering, staggering. Uh, The national stat right now is 40%. 40% of high school students have seriously contemplated suicide in the last 15 months. And every stop we made as we're kind of moving across the Midwest, I would ask that question. I, I would just ask the kids, Raise your hand. Tell me if you have seriously contemplated suicide in the last 15 months. I'd say 40% of those hands went up. And then I would say, tell me if you have a friend who seriously contemplated suicide in the last 15 months. I would say 60, 70% of the hands went up. These are kids who are tied to a youth group who came to a conference specifically to set under times of worship and preaching of God's word. These are the kids that would be the most connected to the flock. 
and they're completely disconnected. They're overwhelmed. They're in shock about what's happened. Addiction rates almost doubled. Divorce rates through the roof. Christian families who suddenly have to work together and live together and do school all in the same house and the normal margins aren't there. And so they drifted from God. They drifted maybe from, from the biblical community and they even drifted from each other. It's, it's, it's insane. It's crazy. It's overwhelming. They're lost. And we've separated. The national stats say that probably... 30% of all churches in North America will never reopen. Uh, the average church in North America is seeing about 35 to 40% of its pre-COVID attendance. Here at Grace, we're at about, I'll call it 75, give or take, of our pre-COVID attendance. Why? We're separated. We've been separated, see, and we're away from each other, and some of us are away from God, right? And what's God's response? Is God's response, hey, you can't take a hit. It's just, it's just a virus. What if it was something more? Is that God's response? Well, you can't navigate a cultural change. Culture changes all the time. Is that God's response? No. When we're separated from God, what's his response? To go searching. To love. To rejoice. To light the lamp. To sweep the floor. He's, he's searching for you. He's not mad. He's not annoyed. He's not even highly disappointed in you. He's passionate, he's concerned, he knows. He knows that you're out there by yourself instead of in the place of safety you should be. Right. And the shepherd's calling and picture him reaching out his hand. And for some of us in our relationship with God, we need to not hide from the shepherd not be afraid of this shepherd. We need to allow him to take us, carry us, and rejoice with us. Right? Now remember, if you're a Christ follower, you were the sheep, now you're the shepherd. The ministry of reconciliation now happens through us. And so I think the Lord will look at us as a church, as fellow believers, and say, we need to do that with each other. Because some of us have wandered from the flock. And we have locked into a pattern of life, to a level of spirituality. We have looked and said life is easier and less complicated when I, I don't have to be places and actually sometimes when I don't have to deal with certain people. And we've wandered away. The couch is easier than the auditorium. 
the, the, the time alone is easier than the time investing in other people's lives. We've wandered away. And I would tell you that the flock misses you and needs you and the shepherds are looking for you and you can't hide and you can't run away. And I just tell you from my heart to your heart, guys, sometimes I, I, don't, know, I don't know how else to call your name. But we need to start coming back to the flock. That doesn't mean you have to come to church every week and that doesn't mean you have to grow, join a program. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about sharing your life and allowing other people to share their lives with you. And if you're away and you're hiding or you're hurt or you're confused, I wanna come to you and I wanna meet with you and I want us to restore whatever relationship, whatever parts of it we need to heal so that we can be connected again and represent Christ again in a unified way, right? So I wanna be the first to say that. That we need the flock to be strong, to be unified, to be invested in each other, right? If I can be a part of that or any of our pastors or elders can be a part of that healing or searching for you, please tell me, email me, message me, call me, tackle me in the parking lot. Maybe don't do that one, but please, right? I'd love to know. For others of us, we're the shepherd. And you know people who are lost, scared, broken, hurting. And it's your family member. It's the person that used to be in your group with you. It's the person that the election or mask or COVID or life has just thrown for a loop. And you know they're alone. And they're not just easily responding to you, so you have to search for them. And I would say to you in love that that's Jesus' heart. That we look for, we light the lamp, we go after each other. And for some of you guys, listen, that person is your spouse, that person's your kids, that person's your parents. And the shock of the storm has redefined a culture, really a planet, and it's redefined your family and your friends and your community. And like the shepherd and like the lady, we need to search, we go privately. Not making statements on social media, not making announcements from the pulpit of a church, but one-on-one, -on -one, privately, how can I help? How can I love? What do we need to talk about? How do we restore? Trust has been strained. What do we need to do? Sweetie, can we get away? See? And as we come, 
into a future, our Savior would look at us and say, I want my flock, my family, my church, my spiritual home, I want you to do that in unity. Not in uniformity. We don't have to agree with each other. We've never agreed with each other about every little thing. That's never Jesus' call. But before you move forward, the Apostle Paul would say, before you take a communion, lock your hearts onto each other and make sure your hearts are reflecting mine. What does mine look like? Like a shepherd, like the lady, like the father waiting for his son. I wrote this down this way just as an easy way to remind us of this, right? So I said this, we need to reach out. If you know someone who's off and disconnected, who's hurting, reach out to them, right? Leave the 99, go after the one. But reach out and make those connections. If you know people who are disconnected from the heart of Jeff or the heart of our pastors or of the church, connect them to us. I will take every single meeting that I can take to help you in any way that I can help you. And all of our pastors will do that, right? We love you. And so we want that connection. So reach out. Then I would encourage you to do this. Reconcile. You know, sometimes in our relationships, we just have to look at each other. And we have to say, sweetie, I, I haven't been my best this last 15 months. I haven't been the friend that I should have been. Maybe I haven't been the pastor that I should have been. Maybe we have to agree to disagree. And you have an opinion and it's valid and I have one and it's valid too, but our love for Christ and each other is way bigger than all those things. So we reconcile, we reconcile first to Christ and then to each other at whatever level that we need to do that. And then finally, what I think the scripture teaches us is we rejoice. We rejoice, they don't bring up the past. We don't live in the wounds. I'm reconnected to my brother, I'm reconnected to my sister. We look back and say, man, something was difficult. And we, we grew through it. We didn't navigate it perfectly, but we're better, we're more mature, we're more complete on the other side of it. And we rejoice that we found each other and we love each other and we're tied to each other, right? If you're not a follower of Christ, this is what Jesus is looking to do for you. He's reaching out. That's why you're listening to this conversation right now because he loves you and cares about you. So he wanted you to know this. He wants to reconcile you because our sin separates us from God. And his response is rejoice. The, the building ain't gonna burn down because you walked in it. That's not the way that works at all. The building gonna light up because you responded to Christ. The Bible says when one sinner gives their life to Jesus, all of heaven rejoices, right? So if you're a sinner, a tax collector, this is what Jesus is saying to you. If you're a believer, this is what Jesus is instructing us to do, all right? All right. 
Guys, I know this season's been a long one. Some of you are just going back to work. Uh, some of you are trying to find out if your college is going to make you vaccinate or not vaccinate and what the schedule is going to be like. Some of you are, are uh, weeks away from going back to school and some parents are thrilled about that. Some students are miserable about it. And, but we're at a time when things are starting to shift. And as the people of God, as we go through this time, I want to I make sure that we understand the heart of God that we interact with each other in humility. We interact with each other out of love. We do things with respect. And we don't have to agree about everything. In fact, we never will, so that's not even a possible goal. But we can be unified, right? We can be unified. And that would reflect the heart of Christ, right? Okay. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us. You always come after us. Even while we were still sinners, you were looking for us. And so we want to trust that. God, for the person who feels helpless and hopeless, right now, through your Holy Spirit, wherever they are, whether in this room or anywhere in the world, would you, in your kindness, draw them to your heart and allow them to turn away from their sin, to repent of it, to accept the hope and the love that you have to offer them, that you want them to have, and to help them in a spiritual and supernatural way to understand that we must yield our life to you and allow you to define and direct us. If there's anyone under the sound of my voice like that, Holy Spirit, would you do that unique work in their heart now? For those of us who know you, Jesus, would you, through your Holy Spirit, empower your word and cause us to recognize someone who's lost, someone who has wandered off, would you cause us to recognize any resentment or pain or distrust that's in our heart? And would you motivate us, God, to seek restoration in that? Would you draw us to each other? And when the texts come and the phone call comes, God, would you give humility on both sides of the conversation? so that love and trust and restoration is, is what is seen and unity is the outcome. God, now as we worship, we sing, and we kind of stare at your heart in these still moments, God, would you interact with us in these powerful ways? We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.